From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. I'd like to begin this episode by saying Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. Our story this week features Terra Informer Dylan Hall, recording from the University of British Columbia campus, where he recently attended the 2019 Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, the largest gathering of scholars anywhere in Canada. With over 7,000 academics and researchers, there was a lot to talk about, and Terra Informa was there covering the environmental news beat. Dylan was able to snag an interview with Scott Mitchell, a PhD candidate and lecturer from Carleton University in Ontario, who was talking about antimicrobial resistance and how the issue of the microbial apocalypse echoes that of the climate catastrophe. Before we get into that story, here are this week's headlines. The Guardian released an updated style guide advising its writers to replace the terms global warming with global heating and climate change with climate crisis. The intention behind the change was to avoid the use of neutral language often utilized by the media and to make it clear to readers and listeners that the environmental conditions we rely upon for survival are in danger. The response from other media sources has been mixed. Some have seemingly followed suit, while others, like the CBC, have approved but not mandated the use of terms like climate crisis and climate emergency, suggesting neutral language on the topic is necessary to preserve journalistic integrity. June is bike month in the city of Edmonton. If you haven't been out for a cycle yet this season, or have never ridden a bicycle in the city, now is a good time to start. Not only does the city offer a series of workshops and events, but there is a community bike library operated by the Students' Union right here on the University of Alberta campus. What's a bike library, you might ask? It's a place to rent a bicycle, find all the tools you need, and a workshop to do maintenance on a bike, as well as to get expert advice on that maintenance, find new and used parts, join a community, and even become a volunteer bike mechanic yourself. Open Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays from 1 to 4 p.m. If those hours don't work for you, or you don't find yourself right here at the U of A, check out Bike Edmonton. Established as the Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society in 1980, Bike Edmonton operates two community workshops, formerly known as Bike Works, one in the north and one in the south both fully equipped to help you learn all about and maintain your bike. You can find links to Bike Month, the Bike Library, 
and Bike Edmonton on our website. If you're listening to this broadcast live on CJSR in Edmonton, then tonight, June 18th at 7 p.m., you could be attending a panel discussion on Indigenous rights and the Green New Deal. Hosted by Briarpatch Magazine and located at The Aviary, the discussion will feature prominent writers, litigators, community leaders, and land defenders from the region. This is a free event. Find a link to the details on our website. If you're not attending Indigenous Rights and the Green New Deal on June 18th, then we hope you attend the A Green New Deal for All, again hosted by Briarpatch Magazine, on Wednesday, June 19th, at the Robertson Wesley United Church. Doors are at 6.30 p.m. and the event begins at 7 p.m. This is a ticketed event and has been selling out in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, and Halifax. You can find a link to the tickets on our website. That's it for headlines, and now time for this week's story. When you think about the apocalypse, what do you imagine? Is it climate change turning the planet into an unhabitable hothouse? Maybe, given the media coverage it's receiving lately. But that's not the only threat to human health and safety right now. Not to alarm you, but what about the microbes that are already in your gut, on your skin, or thriving in the foods you eat? What if the worst of these, the ones that can cause illness and death, were becoming increasingly resistant to our known treatments? PhD candidate and lecturer Scott Mitchell explores how the media is telling the story of antimicrobial resistance and what this apocalypse has in common with climate change, and how the public isn't always getting the message. Dylan Hall has that story now. Do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Scott Mitchell. I am a PhD candidate at Carleton University in communication. Uh, my research is mostly around public understandings of science and public health. How did you come to be studying what you're studying? I, I took a bit of a weird path. My master's was actually in bioinformatics. And at that point, I was uh, working on a project that involved looking at, looking at the role of horizontal gene transfer in antibiotic resistance. Uh, so very different, very different kind of work. Uh, but then for my PhD, I became more interested in these issues around uh, public communication of science, uh, public understandings of science. So my uh, my dissertation uh, actually has to do more with public understandings of contagious diseases. Mm. Uh, but then for this antimicrobial resistance project, um, I'm kind of interested in how the issue is represented in the news, how people come to understand it, and then ultimately how that maybe affects policy. Can you give us just a brief sketch? We'll get into the specific chapter, but of your thesis and what you're focusing on. I know that's a that's a big ask sometimes, but best you can do. Yeah, sure. Um, so my my actual dissertation, I'm looking at. Uh, there's a lot of apps and software programs that public health agencies are increasingly using to track and predict the spread of disease, uh, and there are also these apps that have been developed. Uh, for people to download on their phones and supposedly warn them when they're at risk of contracting a disease. And there's, of course, all these issues around uh, privacy and surveillance, uh, whether these apps are 
maybe sensationalizing that disease risk a bit, especially in the case of privately owned ones that are uh, mostly doing this for the advertising revenue because they'll have ads embedded in the app. Uh, but then I, I also do other projects around science communication and teaching in those areas. So I'm also involved in some projects looking at public perceptions of climate change, environmentalism, and those kinds of issues. My talk the other day, part of what I was interested in was this issue that seems to arise in a lot of the news coverage of antimicrobial resistance, where there's a disproportionate focus on uh, these kind of individual contributions to the problem. So stories that'll focus on patients uh, asking for antibiotics when they actually have a virus or uh, not using the full course of their antibiotics, uh, whereas more kind of systemic causes like the uh, you know, animal agriculture and their, uh, their huge use of antibiotics uh, often go unmentioned. And uh, part of my talk was also making this analogy to climate research where, again, the news coverage of it often will focus on those sorts of individual choices and actions that people should, you know, recycle more, not use plastic straws, drive hybrid cars or electric cars, and less on the larger you know, corporate contributors to the problem. Um, so making a kind of connection between those two scientific issues and the way they're mediated and understood by the public. And I feel like climate change is something that gets a lot more attention than antimicrobial resistance. Maybe you could just give us a briefer for those who don't know what the whole issue is about antimicrobial resistance? Oh, sure. With antimicrobial resistance, what we're seeing is the effectiveness of medications we use to treat bacterial infections uh, decreases as they're used or overused. The bacteria, we say, becomes resistant to the medications. The uh, largest use of antibiotics is actually in the agriculture industry. Uh, and they use a lot of the same medications that, that people use when they get a bacterial infection. So from this overuse, the bacteria become resistant, medications become less effective, and then we see you know, more illness, more deaths. And by the bacteria, you mean like globally the bacteria, just because there's been so many antibiotics being put into the global environment? Yes, exactly. And then what is the, the seriousness of that? Like, can you give us some, some numbers or some conception of why this is considered a huge issue? Yeah, so the, uh, the estimate is that about 20,000 patients in Canadian hospitals every year uh, will become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, uh, which is likely an underestimate. And then the Public Health Agency of Canada is estimating that by 2050, we'll be seeing about 10 million deaths from uh, antimicrobial-resistant bacteria worldwide. So there's this concern that uh, the problem is going to intensify as time goes on. And if it's being used a lot in animal agriculture, are there going to be repercussions in food systems and food production? Uh, yeah, for sure. And one of the issues there we see is that there's this, this increase globally uh, for demand for meat products. Uh, so production is ramping up in lots of different countries. And then we see this, this huge increase in uh, the use of antibiotics for those purposes. Uh, and especially some places don't have strong regulations around uh, how, how, many, you know, how much antibiotics can be used uh, and under what sort of circumstances. They're often used just to uh, have the animals grow more, not even to treat diseases. Uh, so that's uh, a huge contributor to the problem. Or uh, in some cases, they don't even gather any data on, uh, on the antibiotics that are being used, how much are being used, and under what sort of circumstances. So there's no surveillance of it either. So I feel like I have a bit more of a sense now of the problem of antimicrobial resistance, but I feel like that is not 
kind of the story that we often hear in the news, if we hear the story at all. Like, this isn't something I know very much about or have heard very much about, and I wonder why that is. Or why you true. Think it so is. you also just don't see a lot of coverage of the issue, to be honest. Something that might explain that is this idea that antimicrobial resistance is kind of seen as this slow building problem, uh, something that is a threat for the distant future. So it gets less coverage and less public interest. And that's where I was also making this connection to climate change, where people often see it as this distant rather than immediate problem and something that'll affect us in the future. So without that urgency, there's just less interest in it. Yeah. Have you heard of Rob Nixon and slow violence? Uh, no, I haven't. He wrote a book called Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. And he brings up this concept of slow violence as he, he's a an English professor. So he's interested in representation and how things are represented. And he brings up this problem of representing slow violence, which is all of these things that are drawn out, not at fast, flashy, sensational timescales, and brings up examples like the Bhopal disaster in India, Agent Orange in Vietnam being dropped, how oftentimes you think of the war in Vietnam being over and being done. And still people are being affected by the long-term slow violence of that chemical weaponry. So it sounds very similar to what you're talking about. And his big question in the book is like, how do we try and represent this slower, less visible, less dramatic unfolding that's very real at the same time. There are a few different frames you were talking about of how people have tried to represent AMR. Could you tell us a few of the ways that it has come yeah. out in the public? Sure. So um, in relation to that issue of, of the, the timescale or perceived timescale of the problem, we do see some coverage that has what I call this kind of apocalyptic framing, uh, where it'll often literally use the word apocalypse. So it'll tell us about the antimicrobial apocalypse that's coming. The title of my talk actually was referencing this article that referred to it as the tsunami that's that's coming. Uh, so something I was exploring in my talk was that on the one hand, you might think that if there's this lack of public engagement and interest, maybe this, this apocalyptic framing could be a corrective to that. It could make people think this is a serious problem that we need to deal with. On the other hand, there's been quite a lot of research, uh, especially with climate change, that's looked at how that sort of apocalyptic framing, uh, it can backfire. It makes people feel like there's nothing they can do, that it's inevitable. So it, it, it has the opposite effect. Yeah, it's so difficult. Like it's, as a journalist who thinks a lot about climate change, have you come across any articles or public coverage that find that balance between conveying the seriousness and the urgency while not inspiring fatalism in people? For sure. For sure. So for for all the different health and science issues I look at where part of my project is looking at the news coverage, there's always actually examples of, you know, accurate uh, responsible coverage. Uh, you know, I've also done projects looking at like the, the Ebola crisis and the Zika virus outbreak and a lot of the issues with the media coverage around those. But in both of those cases, there, there, there was still this reassuring, more accurate coverage. Uh, but one of the issues is that with our current media environment, there's, of course, this, this kind of incentive to frame things sensationally, to have a attention-grabbing headline and picture, because uh, that gets shared more widely on social media. So in some cases, actually, we'll see articles that the text of the article itself is quite informative and thorough, but it'll be paired with a uh, quite sensationalist headline and image. And we know a lot of people won't actually read the articles, unfortunately. They'll just see that headline and image on Twitter or Facebook or something and not engage with the actual content. And I think oftentimes the writer doesn't even 
get to choose that title or it's that true, picture. It's often the editor who's choosing the title in the picture. So yesterday you kind of talked about the avoiding the trap of sensational news media explaining everything. Um, can you expand on what you meant? Yeah, sure. So this is something I talked to my students about in my science communication class, where uh, for years there's what's called the deficit model of science communication, uh, where there's this idea that uh, people are ignorant, they don't know about science, and we need to communicate it to them as accurately as possible in this kind of information transmission model. But we've found problems with that over the years. So the anti-vaxxer movement is this uh, really good case study, actually, for why the deficit model falls apart. Uh, because we have a lot of cases where the, the news coverage actually is, you know, again, very accurate, uh, goes into the, into the issue with quite a bit of depth. Um, people are being exposed to this accurate information from health agencies, but it isn't actually changing their minds in that case because it's not a problem of information transmission. It's, in many cases, a problem of trust. These anti-vaxxers don't trust health authorities. They don't trust the media. So I suppose what I was trying to get at is that I, I didn't want to fall into that trap of framing the problem in these overly simplistic terms where we have this supposedly ignorant public uh, and this sensational media that's getting it wrong. Uh, it's often more complicated than that. So what does public media often focus on or often tell people to do? So for AMR in particular, as I mentioned, there's this focus on more uh, individual frames of responsibility than more systemic ones. So we, we see this uh, good advice. It's still certainly good advice to not get antibiotics if you have a virus or you know the, the flu uh, to use your full course of antibiotics not stop it early just because you're feeling better so those are this that's the sort of public health advice people are getting on an individual basis and again it's good advice that people should be following my larger point is more that we focus disproportionately on that and not on the other contributors to the problem so why do you think that is why do you think there's such a focus on the individual that's a really good question, um, with I'm sure a lot of answers, and one of them I'm sure is that people are more interested and are more likely to engage with a, a, a news story that has to do with their personal agency and choices and actions. Uh, it's something that will seem of more interest to them perhaps than something that's talking about these larger systemic issues. And there's also the whole idea of neoliberalism as something that's come out of the 80s is a lot about like the privatization of responsibility for either environmental or health issues to the individual and the promotion of the individual but it's really interesting to hear that as just almost a natural human response to just wanting to have agency and efficacy despite the scale and the size of these problems. And there's the whole issue too, which you know, I'm sure you're aware of, and there's increasing awareness of this, the, the problem of false balance in news coverage. So with climate change, of course, the issue of having a climate scientist arguing with some climate change denier. And the news media sometimes does this in this effort to seem objective and fair and balanced. But of course, it presents climate change as if it's up for debate or as if it's one person arguing with another rather than the vast, vast majority of scientists forming this consensus around anthropogenic climate change. And that's something that I sometimes struggle to talk to my students about because I think there is this natural tendency to think we do need to be, of course, you know, fair and, and balanced. And even in the classroom, I think sometimes students might think I'm politically biased. And I try to make this point to them that well, first, if we look at the news and understand how there's no real neutrality there or this attempt to be neutral has consequences, it's the same in the classroom. If I'm trying to talk to them about certain political actors, muzzling scientists or being anti-science, and there's certain political parties that are doing that more than others, then 
by nature, it's going to be a political discussion. Yeah, and the idea of striving for objectivity when you are always going to be situated and framing things and potentially editing things and pulling things together sounds like an illusion to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you were talking about how framing climate change as an environmental issue sometimes isn't as effective as thinking about it as a public health issue or a national security issue. Could you expand on that? Sure. So we've seen some research that's suggested that if we frame climate change as a public health issue, so focusing on things like the increase in smog, the increase in heat waves, the increase in certain contagious diseases that are going to spread more uh, as a result of climate change. So, you know, we're seeing more ticks, more Lyme disease, more West Nile virus, uh, or framing it in a national security sort of context. So looking at something like the Syria crisis and how climate change in part contributed to that, people often respond more to those sorts of frames than they do the environmental concerns. And I think it's linked to, we saw that public concern about climate change took a huge dip following the recession in 2008. And it's probably, you know, people have what they think are these more pressing concerns in their everyday lives than something that, again, seems like a distant potential problem. So in, in that vein, if something is framed as a public health issue or a national security issue, it seems perhaps more immediate and of more personal significance than an environmental issue. And I was so taken away, you showed a diagram depicting the differences between how people actually die and what they perceive as risky. And it was extreme. Could you, if you have any of it in your mind, lay out some of the differences between like what is actually most risky to people and what people perceive as being quite risky in their lives? Yeah, well, one of the most enlightening figures about that, um, people are, uh, of course, are very concerned about terrorism and specifically an act of terrorism, killing themselves or a loved one in the US or Canada. But people are more likely to be killed by their furniture tipping over and crushing them. So that's uh, part of this larger point that people are kind of bad about understanding what pose risks to them. And then the, the issue with that, of course, is that if people are motivated by these misplaced fears, that can lead to problematic outcomes. Uh, you know, the war on terrorism and some of its negative effects. Or I think I talked about this in my presentation. There was a lot of fear about a domestic outbreak of Ebola. And because people were afraid of the disease harming themselves or loved one, they pushed for closing borders, not sending medical help to West Africa, not letting aid workers return. Uh, and those sorts of measures we know actually increase the length of a disease outbreak and put the whole international community at greater risk. So that's at the core of a lot of these issues, trying to communicate better to the public about these sorts of risks. In thinking about trying to communicate about something like antimicrobial resistance or climate change, but not trying to be counterproductive and have it backfire on you, can you speak a bit about different appeals? Like you talked a bit about fear-based appeals being one way that people go at it. What's effective or what isn't? Well, so with fear-based appeals, there's also a lot of research that has shown they're not very effective in terms of public health messaging, that the ads that, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, all, all those are not only ineffective in some cases, but again, counterproductive. Uh, there are ad campaigns in the 90s and early 2000s, I think, um, targeted towards uh, raising awareness about HIV and AIDS. Um, and some of those campaigns focused on some of the uh, symptoms of the disease and uh, the effects it has on your body and uh, went into quite gruesome detail. And then researchers found that actually 
had the negative effect of a lot of people then were afraid to go and get tested and find out if they actually had HIV or AIDS because they were so afraid of the disease. So it was actually quite counterproductive. So it's definitely something to think about in terms of uh, the news media or public health agencies messaging that fear-based appeals often don't work or backfire. And then the question is, what sorts of appeals should we be using? How do we communicate to people? And then to go back to the, the anti-vaxxer example, if we know it's not an information transmission problem, then the frame isn't, here's the accurate information, now we assume you're going to change your mind. The frame needs to be rebuilding that trust, getting people to trust health officials, uh, the news media, the government. And I think a lot of people, like this almost gets to how Trump was elected in some ways. Um, I think a lot of people have lost a lot of trust in the establishment and whether it's because of their inability to pay their rent or get their kids through school or because they're thinking about climate change and the way that world leaders aren't adequately responding to it. I guess I'm, I'm wondering why people wouldn't just see through a trust-based message and say, well, these institutions aren't serving us. Like, why should we trust the official messaging? Like, do you think people have a good reason to not well, trust yeah, so official messaging? A really good point and kind of the crux of the issue. So another interesting example is Gwyneth Paltrow and her Goop company. So she's been under fire by a lot of doctors and health practitioners who point out that the products she sells uh, not only are ineffective, but actually can cause harm. Uh, and then her company issued a statement that talked about how women are often ignored or marginalized by healthcare practitioners and that their company then offers the solution to women who are being ignored and their health problems being marginalized. And the thing is, they're, they're right about that underlying problem. And I think that's part of what makes it so powerful in these cases that there is this real issue there that people identify uh, and then unfortunately get pushed towards false solutions. And don't listen to the very real information that might be coming from, for example, the World Health Organization mm -hmm. talking about this problem in particular. What do you think about like love-based appeals or appeals to morality or justice? Like, does that work? Does that turn people off? Do you have any idea? <laughs> it's, it's a good question. And I think it's also interesting to look at with a lot of pseudoscience, there's, interestingly enough, these appeals to objectivity mm -hmm. and truth. So someone like Jordan Peterson, who frames a lot of his rhetoric in this, this idea that he is speaking to truth, speaking scientifically, his you know, whole thing about compare, uh, comparing people to lobsters to support this idea of hierarchical social structures. Uh, and of course, if you look into it, or if you know anything about evolutionary biology, you know that's garbage. Like he, he, gets, he even gets it wrong about the point at which humans and lobsters diverged. Uh, and not to mention, it's a bad argument to compare people or society to animals for, to, to make some sort of point, because on, you know, on that basis, you could choose to compare people to certain primates and make an argument that, oh, we're naturally primed towards uh, cooperation and social structure. And promiscuous love. Sure. So you can choose anything in the animal kingdom at various points in the evolutionary time scale and be like, look, nature supports what I'm saying. Um, I think I've maybe gone off on a weird tangent, but my point is that, yeah, it's really interesting to see where appeals to truth or love or various things maybe could be of use to people trying to combat misinformation, but especially when we look at some of the sources of misinformation, they're, uh, they're, they, they themselves are using those frames very effectively, actually. Okay, well, thank you so much. Do you have anything else you want to add or anything else you want people to hear? 
Um, still definitely uh, don't take antibiotics if you have a virus or the flu and finish your full course of antibiotics. <laughs> okay, Scott, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. That was Tara Informer, Dylan Hall, interviewing PhD candidate and lecturer Scott Mitchell from Carleton University. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week. If you have any questions, comments, feedback about the show, don't hesitate to send us an email to Tara at CJSR.com, tweet us at Tara Informa, or find us on Facebook at Tara Informa. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Thank you to all of our volunteers this week, Elizabeth Dowdell, Sophia Osborne, and Hannah Cunningham. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll catch us next week right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>